Hello, everybody. This is Sean Harwell. You are listening to the Never Heard of It episode. Doing a mini episode today. This is episode 44.5, and the point is on point. I don't know what that means, but I'm happy to be joined today by the one, the only... Tom Brady. Wow. Hello. I was not expecting that. glad to be here on your sports show. Hey, Tom. Uh, no, I'm Craig Moorhead, of course, and uh, you know, this is the podcast where we talk about the things uh, that haven't totally fallen through our cracks. Uh, these mini episodes, of course, we're going to talk about things that are going on that might be a little more uh, 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 popular at the time to talk about. Sometimes we want to be popular. We want to be thought of as popular. We want to be well-liked. That's weird, though. I, I do think that flies a bit in contradiction with our guest that we have today. <laughs> <laughs> so let me, yes. without further ado, welcome back to the show, Mr. Brian Crane. Hey, guys. Happy to be back. Hey, Brian. Enemy of the people, Brian Crane. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't listened to our episode on the Paul Schrader film, The Comfort of Strangers, written by... Um, Ian McEwen. Yes. Adapted by... Uh, that guy. Playwright. What was his name? Oh, yeah. Uh, Shakespeare? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was Shakespeare. He came back from the dead. It was, it was, he's a good writer. Such a get. A it was such a get. You know the only way we can find out the answer mm. to this? Oh, it was... Um, no, 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 no. I know, I know the answer. If we wait long enough, he'll come up with it. No, I was going to say the only oh. way we can find out the answer to this is to go listen to the episode. Ah, that's right. That's a good point. That's the only way. Let's do that right now in real time. <laughs> anyway, the, 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 the playwright is Harold Pinter. Yes, Harold He's the one. Harold Pinter. And that was a lot of fun. And you also joined us on the episode where we talked about the Wachowski siblings, the Wachowski siblings, their first film. Found. That was a that, good podcast. That one, that was that was a good podcast. It's doing pretty well in the numbers too. Yeah, people like to listen to the ladies. So yeah, that, that's taught us a lesson. <laughs> uh, I'm getting flipped off. So on, on that note, let's let's move on then, and let's talk about a little piece of news that popped up recently. And Craig, I sent you this link, and then Crane, I think we clued you in as well. And this is a tidbit of information via the AV Club that they are possibly working on a sequel to the classic Eddie Murphy Arsenio Hall comedy, Coming to America. And it's been a while since I asked you this, Craig, and Crane, I'll ask you as well. Is this peak nostalgia? <laughs> Brian, as our guest, I, I insist you go first. It, it, it does seem to be uh, of a piece uh, of that trend. It, it's, it, it's like I don't know whether it would be more peaky nostalgia if it were a reboot as opposed to a sequel. I feel like sequel is true peak nostalgia because then you're going to bring back all the people mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, it's going to continue the storyline. Um, but, I, I mean, I understand the impulse to remake things, but for classic movies, I mean... I mean, Coming to America has aged very well. It is a good, funny movie. Agreed. What, I mean, does it need to be revisited? It, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, the Ghostbusters thing, where for forever they were trying to get a Ghostbusters sequel going. And it's like, you know, at a certain point, it's just like, don't do that. It's done. And I, I, mm-hmm. but, but yes, peak nostalgia. Yeah, I think we're there. Craig, counterpoint. <laughs> Here's why. Here's where Brian's wrong. <laughs> okay, good. In the world of film, 
No, uh, I think that, um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I, on the one hand, I don't want them to revisit this because generally revisiting something is a terrible idea. Although apparently Train Spotting 2 was not a terrible idea from what I've heard. So it does kind of feel like if, if they can do something where, uh, I don't know, Murphy actually comes back, they, they get as much of the original cast together as possible and it's actually funny, then let's revisit that. But but is, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly not clamoring for it. There aren't a lot of unanswered questions <laughs> from the original. No, they kind of addressed everything. <laughs> Except for can Eddie Murphy play more characters in this movie? I think the answer to that would be yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And here's basically all we know from that article, and that is that the original writers of the film have been hired by Paramount to write the sequel. Yeah, and that doesn't, that doesn't thrill me. Uh, I mean, I don't want to be ageist or like... It, it sounds like you're about to I'm be, gonna be but But it's like, this, <laughs> they are not going to be capable of providing a fresh new take. Um, uh, I would be interested if it were some, you know, writer who had like this, you know, real reverence for the movie. It's like, all I, all I want to do is, is make a new coming to America. And it's like, okay, fine. You did it. This is your passion project. Let's go. But to just to bring yeah. in uh, Barry Blaustein and David Sheffield back from out out of <laughs> out of deep freeze, uh, uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem promising. Wow, that was me. Wow, Sean, <laughs> counterpoint. I will say this: if the whole movie took place in Africa, I'd watch it. I mean, to me, that's enough of a thing that's different. It's like okay, let's flip the script. Let's go to Africa. He's been living in America for 20 years. He's got a wife, his kids. They're all assimilated, basically, to this culture. Take him out of it. And I could see that. But also, to your point about the movie holding up well, I do think the makeup effects are extremely good in that movie, especially yeah. you know, when Eddie Murphy and I think both Arsenio Hall play older white men. It, you know, it looks great. I mean, there's been so many far worse versions of that done recently. And... Not nearly as good, I don't think. So good on them. Um, that's John Landis directing, so obviously he's worked in that film before. Was that was that the Rick Indeed. Baker? It, did they did the makeup? I yeah. Mean, yeah, I mean probably. probably. It's definitely somebody. Yeah, I think it was him. He's good. I'm gonna dump some news on you here that maybe you guys did not see and it just dawned on me, sorry, before we started recording that I wanted to talk about this. So here we are. Yeah, Marvel once again is hiring um, directors to do a movie that I think are probably a little unexpected as far as taking on a superhero tentpole. And that is that they got Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck to do the Captain Marvel movie. And I know really nothing about the character of Captain Marvel, but I do believe this is going to be Marvel's first solo female superhero film that they've done. And I know Brie Larson is attached to play that character. Uh, but I do know about Anna Bowden and Rod and Fleck. I've seen, it's kind of a funny story. And they've also done um, Half Nelson mm -hmm. with Ryan Gosling and then Mississippi Grind recently with Ben Mendelsohn and Ryan Reynolds. Obviously just very solid, solid indie street cred. Mm -hmm. And yeah, now they're being handed the keys to a big Marvel movie. I don't know if either of you guys maybe know about that character perhaps. But again, it just seems, and no mm -hmm. offense to the DC world and what they're doing over there at Warner Brothers, but it just feels like Marvel, once again, is getting it right. You know, I think even in this article, 
they reference the guy there who's saying, you know, look, we can give our directors all the accoutrements they need to kind of handle the scope of something like this. But what we can't teach and replace is character and story and filmmakers that know how to do that well. And it seems like, yeah, it's just worked out so well for them so far. And you can see it on the screen. Thoughts? Well, full disclosure slash name drop. <laughs> I know the the author of the books that they're basing this on. Really? As far as I know, Kelly Sue DeCott. Mm. And so I have I have some of the books that she wrote. And I would just say a part of the reason that it kind of makes sense to me to have these particular folks directing the movie is Kelly has, and and therefore the book has, uh, a very good sense of humor that I think you need someone who's not a tentpole action director to handle. And I think they will uh, very possibly do a very good job with that because I think there's so much about the personality that Kelly Sue kind of brought out in Captain Marvel that has kind of brought Captain Marvel back uh, to be a kind of a major player in the uh, Marvel universe. So that's my own hot take. What is Captain Marvel's power? She's being marvelous. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> I have heard that she is the most powerful character that, that will exist in the Marvel universe once she has a movie. Wow. Right, so more powerful than Thor, all those guys. So I guess she's kind of like... kind of the super man, super woman. Well, it sounds like what Kelly did with uh, Captain Marvel is a little bit like what um, a little guy named uh, Matt Fraction did with uh, Hawkeye Mm -hmm. in that took a character who no one thought much about and then just completely reinvented it and made him a really compelling, dynamic character. And I guess what happened here was with uh, Captain Marvel is um, uh, Kelly did that with her. And, and now she's kind of a, a big enough property where they can turn that into a film. I, I, I don't know much about her. She, you know, she was I got into comics around uh, 89 and uh, there wasn't anybody talking about Captain Marvel back then. <laughs> so uh, uh, she I missed her. I, did, I didn't I didn't catch that that wave. So. I don't know, but but then again, look what they did with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Exactly. You know, nobody knew that, so you know it, it's exciting, and I think uh, Sean's right. Marvel is making all the right moves, and DC is making all the Zack Snyder moves, and uh, <laughs> we see where we're going with that. You know, I like yeah. this. Crane is just cutting oh. through it, man. Taking down names. All bridges burned. Let me ask you this. Is this a movie you automatically check out, or do you need a trailer to kind of seal the deal and get you in the need, theater? Need a trailer. Okay. Need a trailer. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll definitely automatically check it out. Yeah, you know the I'm books, sort so of the built-in audience, yeah. Do you think this will be something that, you know, girls of what age will be going to see this? I think it'll be quite a range, because it's a, it's a pretty PG book. Cool. 20-something party girls. So it could be... <laughs> Kind of the Sia crowd. You do have the pulse on 20-something party <laughs> girls, don't you? I know yeah, they follow my column. <laughs> Let's talk about another big company in Netflix. So there was a big article that went around, and a, a total opinion piece by David Ehrlich for IndieWire, 
And this was about Netflix acquisition model where, you know, essentially they are buying and making indie films. And I think the financing usually comes in typically after the movie has been made. I think the example they gave is is this really small movie that was bought in the $2 million range. And so they're buying these things, usually, you know, stuff that's performed well at festivals and then putting them on Netflix. And that seems to be it. You know, there's no fanfare and you end up kind of lumped in with all the other content on there. And so I was just kind of curious, you know, the article definitely gets in its snarky comments, which makes it a good read. But, you know, I, I do think this is, you know, this is a modern problem worth talking about. You know, you've got a movie, you know, with Brad Pitt coming out at Netflix, I think next month, and they've made Beats of No Nation. And, you know, they put some money behind these things, but, you know, maybe with arguably mixed results. We don't really know the numbers. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, where are we at with this? Do you think it's a good thing? to sell your small movie to Netflix? Or is there still a better option out there via the theaters and the more traditional model? That's a good question. I, I mean, when I read this, I, I felt like uh, what was happening was David Ehrlich was sort of more upset with sort of entrenched trends than he was specifically with Netflix. I mean, the fact is, people are going to see movies less. They're going. They're watching Netflix at home. Um, the other fact of the matter is that uh, indie movies are harder to finance, harder to get people to see them. I mean, all those things are at play. So the fact that Netflix is another buyer, and they're actually paying, I think, really good money. I mean, the movie in question called Tramps. Mm-hmm. You know, the director was so happy when Netflix bought it. You know, he was crying and because he knew that everybody who helped make the movie would be whole again. And it's like, I've, I don't know if there's really any reason to feel real sadness for this guy because uh, Netflix is not doing a good enough job of marketing these movies and letting people know that they're on Netflix to watch. Um I, I feel like if Netflix is putting that much money towards these movies, then it's it's warranted. They're getting enough viewers to warrant that kind of outlay of cash. So so I know they're secretive with how many people are watching this or that, and and I disagree with that. But um, it, is is this movie going to have more people see it because it's on Netflix? than it would if it had a limited release in Los Angeles and New York. My guess would be yes. So it's he's getting more money for it than he might otherwise have, and more people are seeing it. I'm, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot to be upset about. But, I mean, all that said, I still take his point. Like, it would be better if it were, if it were a better system. But um, I'm, I'm not sure I uh, agree with the intensity of his uh, grievance. Counterpoint, Craig. Brian, here's where you're wrong. <laughs> no, please tell me. I love it. In the film world. <laughs> oh wait, we weren't we weren't talking about comics still. Oh, no, 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 no. sorry, guys. This is not comics. Deep. That's all right. <laughs> no, uh, no, I, I, I agree with. I mean, I, I agree very much with with what you said. Um, yes, the thing I kept thinking about was. <laughs> You know, we, we, we had, um, I guess what, through the late 90s, early 2000s maybe, you know, everyone's talking about how all filmmaking has just been democratized now. Like things, Everything's getting cheaper. It's getting cheaper to make these films, so they're just 
thousands and thousands more films out there to watch. Of course, nobody's watching them because they're not going anywhere. <laughs> There's right. nowhere to watch them. Mm-hmm. So then you do have something like Netflix where maybe there is a place for a lot of these movies, you know, that they can actually be housed. Like movie theaters are, are shutting down generally unless they're a multiplex where they're not going to show the movie that you made for $500. But but maybe, you know, if it's, if it's of a certain quality, Netflix will buy it and, and there will be a place where people can watch it without you having to send them like a DVD, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's a pretty good presentation and maybe they'll put a little bit of weight behind it. Maybe they won't. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it makes me feel kind of sick to think like you would work so hard and you would actually get a company like Netflix to invest in your movie. You'd make that movie and then it would basically be up to you to let anybody know about it. Like that's, that's kind of ridiculous for, for as big a company as they are. Uh, it, it just seems that there's a there's the technology is there to to get these movies in front of people in a better way and and, and honestly the other thing I just kept thinking about was that they're a big enough company where they could be maybe doing more positive things for the actual moving go movie going experience like they're they're big enough I think to change some of that culture I don't know if they're buying these movies I mean yeah even if it's like limited runs in theaters and so on. It'd be nice to know that Netflix was kind of uh, helping out there. What do you think, Sean? I don't know. I still think eventually they're going to have to do some type of traditional theatrical release. And I think a bit more than what they did would be of No Nation. Yeah, it's like you're saying, you know, we don't know the numbers on Netflix. I mean, they were happy to tell us that something like over 5 million views have occurred for some of these Adam Sandler movies they've made, which is insane. Insane is a word for it. Yeah, but it's, it's like you were saying, you know, you can feel the pain of a filmmaker who puts everything into making you know, a really small independent film. They have this great sale, and then there you go. You know, I, I guess it goes into somebody's queue, um, which you know they may never actually get to. You know, or you're lumped right beside all these other things which aren't related and relevant, or even new, or you know, they just might be complete garbage. And so I, I think that's the trick. You know, if the bottom line is just about acquiring content. You know, this thing where, oh, our library has 2 million titles and Amazon's only has 1.7 million. You know, I think that's a really dumb arms race that doesn't really benefit anyone. You know, and, and I've experienced that being involved on a show that is on Amazon. You know, sometimes it's hard to find the dang show. Uh, I remember going to a meeting there right after they'd put out their first round of shows and I couldn't find, you know, Alpha House or whatever it was. Um yeah on the iPad app, like it took forever. And that's insane to me. You know, you control the distribution and the presentation of it all, put it front and center. I'm okay with that. I expect that when it's your own content, you know, and they do it for some and they're getting better at it, I think, but it feels much more ironed out uh, on the TV side in some cases than on the film so far. And I think, you know, these places will figure that out or filmmakers just won't be as keen to sell to them. Well, how do you, how do you think uh, Netflix could fix it? Is it just a matter of like a, a marketing campaign, TV commercials, or do you think it's even just yeah. on on the opening front page, like yeah. freshly added? Because right now it's so locked in by algorithm, it's like you know because you watch this. No, and but that's the thing. It's like I, I still don't think their algorithm is all that great. You know, you have to yeah. filter through so many different titles. You know, it's hard to find your own list sometimes. Your queue. And that's what's nuts, you know, so if they have all these metrics and data on us, 
use that to better push those movies that they buy and, and that might be perfect for us, you know, expand that audience, get those people who might like tramps if they knew about it based on their previous viewing history and, and introduce them to it. You know, they know so much about our viewing habits. It feels like still that front page Netflix, you know, especially it, it just needs more work on that front. Agreed. Good. We're all agreed. <laughs> Solved. Craig, why don't you walk us through this little article that you found <clears throat> and that then quickly disappeared? Uh, this crazy thing that the blacklist, which is an entity that was originally an industry-only thing, set up as a you know a query of agents at the various agencies to find the best unproduced scripts of each year, and they still do that. But now you know they've also kind of extended um, their realm to beyond that. They offer feedback and consulting services to you know pretty much any writer, you know whether you've gotten your script through the gates of Hollywood or not. And now yeah. it looks like they're also venturing into the world of AI. I mean, this this almost read like a joke when I first clicked on this. How did you find out about this story in the first place? Yeah, well, here's where you're wrong, Sean. <laughs> it's not a joke. In the film world, mm-hmm. no. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was it was it was kind of bizarre. This link went around pretty fast yesterday, where uh, the blacklist, which which did have a pretty well thought out system of sort of filtering scripts that you, you could send, you know, them scripts and they read it and rank them, and people were paying attention to that a good bit, at least in some circles, it seemed like. Anyway, <laughs> but then they said they're going to add this this uh, component where you can for for a measly one hundred dollars, <laughs> you can get a four page report made out by some software that analyzes your script and it tells you what genre this most likely is (laughs) and i'll just i mean to start off with if you don't know what genre your script is don't spend a hundred dollars on your screenplay yet yeah um but uh but then yeah it would it would say you know who's your like most sympathetic character here's where this script would rank with movies on a sort of bizarre creativity and audience score scale there there's some very and and then and then what what is most likely what is your production budget and all that and and it just it seemed like it seemed like kind of an april fools prank in a way <laughs> like going through it and just thinking like i don't know i i guess i guess first of all why would you want to pay anyone to give you their opinion on your script i mean i can see why uh-huh. But then even more so, why would you want to spend that much money to have a computer <laughs> tell you these things? Because if you really start, I, I don't know, I, I, I don't know what the insight would be that would really, the amazing insight. Like you're not going to go to somebody and say, well, a computer said this will cost $10 million. Well, and does, they'll look at it and say, does Skynet well, want to make your movie? I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a question I have. <laughs> if they're into it, you're golden for a long time. Or dead. The Terminators will watch it. Yeah, I was trying to think about this in a devil's advocate kind of way. And I do think that maybe, like, say, I'm writing a treatment right now. So it's a short little document, you know, kind of outlines a movie without being scene by scene. And one of the harder things to do is to figure out a really good comp. You know, sometimes those things aren't completely obvious, right? You know, you think of this movie that did well when you're reading this. And so you always, always have to have those. So if there's this thing that could look at my treatment and say, I don't know, give me like 10 comps to consider. And some I'm sure are going to be better than others, but here's 10 movies 
I might draw a line to that I hadn't thought of. Like, you know, here's how much they cost. Here's how much they made. I, I could see the value in that. You know, it's just one more thing to help you get to the next stage. But I don't think that info helps you as a writer with like any of the actual writing of the script, you know, unless you're going into production well, I would or say, actively seeking financing. So I don't think it's going to help, right. you know, any of those mechanics. And it's also a lot of this seems like information you could find on your own. Like you don't have to run it through a robot. Right. And Well, I feel like the other value might be if the people you're going to sell to trust that software. Sure then learning how to make that software tell them to buy your screenplay might be valuable for you, maybe not for the movie-going public. No, but I mean, honestly, if this business was predictable, then there would never be any failures. You know, obviously, it's a crapshoot to begin with in that regard. Right. But I do want to say, you know, as for the cost of it, though, I mean, I've definitely seen way more expensive services geared for writers. You know, maybe they offer like a bit more of a personalized experience and their feedback but nonetheless you know if people want to pay a hundred bucks that, that's okay with me you know i don't really kind of hold that against them or have a huge issue with the cost of it but like the guy mm-hmm. in the article said you know I have a hard time thinking that producers are going to look at any of this information and that it'll be any of you know real value to them when they're deciding which scripts to pursue yeah i like wow with this with this uh, story um, I, I think that maybe someday down the line, like AI could get to a point where it could offer useful, valuable critique of, of a script or novel or something. But I, I feel like uh, it might be that the trend is to uh, give AI uh, more credit than it's than it's really due. Um, I, I don't think. I mean, just just reading that and reading the sort of stats that it was coming back with on known movies like Fences saying that, uh, you know, Denzel Washington's character was more sympathetic than the other two characters when any human who saw the movie would say that that's, that's not true at all. Um, and I, 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 do, I just don't think that um, it's worth it right now, um, especially a, a hundred bucks. Uh, you know, I mean, imagine, you know, putting a novel through that through and, and having it, you know, scanned for certain words and that sort of thing. I think it just sort of um, underestimates the really strange alchemy of creating a story, whether it's in a script or anything else. It's like you need uh, human uh, perception to go through that and read it to give you anything remotely useful. A computer isn't capable of that. I, my own thought is that it will never be capable uh, of doing that, yeah. but it certainly isn't right now. Yeah. Well, and, and to follow up on this, uh, it looks like now they're not going to go through with that. Oh, oh. good. Yeah. Because we won. Exactly. Because of this <laughs> particular episode. No, but, oh, wow. Um, there was such an uproar and a lot of, uh, professional screenwriters, probably, uh, well, the only one I'm positive about is, uh, Craig Mazin. Uh, did the the hangover stuff has the uh, the podcast script notes very vocal about things and and he's kind of he's kind of been a cheerleader for the blacklist which is I pretty unusual that. for him he tends to be against all the guru stuff um uh but yeah so apparently he just he really uh let franklin Le- leonard have it uh and so did a lot of other people and so they decided you know what this is clearly not a good fit for this community and so they're not going to do it I just I do have a hard time imagining what the actual value of it is as presented 
you know, to the writing process, you know, even knowing the percent level of sympathy towards one of your characters, like that's not a real useful note, you know, that doesn't help yeah. you fix it. Yeah. What does that matter? Well, it does matter to a degree if you're writing, you right. know, something that's commercial I mean, sure you want to have rootable characters, but I think you'd still be scratching your head as to, you know, having to actually sit down and fix it, you know, based on that type of note. Right. And if it said a character was not likable enough and it's like, oh no, he's really likable. Then, you know, how do you argue with that, right? It just feels like it should have been pitched more to studios and producers than writers and really like lazy and cynical ones at that. Like those examples, they're just terrible. They never should have gone out with that. The Avengers has less of an audience rating than G.I. Jane and Malibu's Most Wanted. Are you kidding me? And, and, but the, but the graph itself didn't make any sense anyway. Like even beyond that, it was just like, it was like one, one, one scale was creativity. The other was like audience score. And like I, I, yeah, I don't know. Like the Godfather was super creative, but all these other ones are not creative. Like I, <laughs> I just didn't even know how to take any of it. So yeah, you loved Malibu's Most Wanted, didn't you, Craig? <laughs> it's a really, it's a really good movie, guys. And Audience you rating was through the roof. I voted like ninety times. <laughs> wow. Well, there we go. Well, I don't have anything else. You know, I don't know if you guys do, but we can wrap this up. You know, obviously, it's always fun having you on, Brian. I hope you can do it again sometime very soon. Thanks very much. Anytime. Well, not not anytime. Yeah, let's go. Oh, oh uh, just just when, when you ask me, I guess. <laughs> Maybe only when I'm in Atlanta. <laughs> right, come find us at neverheardpodcast.com. You can find links to all of our social stuff. We appreciate the iTunes reviews we've got. And if you want to throw up one of those as well, if you haven't got around to it, that'd be great. Helps people find the show and craig uh any well, i don't know maybe we should get brian the last words what do you think yeah let's uh, brian give us some last words um uh, yeah take care guys <laughs> that was uh, pathetic all right. all right okay bye, bye. <laughs> <That was good. laughs>